You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Rob Webster. I'm an associate professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Professor Lorraine Dearden. Lorraine is a professor of economics and social statistics in the Social Research Institute at the IOE. Lorraine uses data and advanced quantitative techniques to understand, evaluate and inform public policy. She has a wide range of policy interests, including the impact of education and training on labour market outcomes and higher education funding. Lorraine's research makes use of government administrative data to look at public policy issues, and she's currently exploring the design of student loans in a number of countries across the world. And the importance of well-designed student loans and higher education financing schemes is the focus of our discussion today. We'll also see to what extent the global COVID pandemic is having and may yet have on student financing. Hello, Lorraine. Welcome to the Research for the Real World virtual studio. Hello. Lorraine, like our excellent podcast production team, you originally hail from Australia. Can you tell us, first of all, about your research journey and what brought you to the UK and to UCL specifically? Uh, Yes, Rob. Well, I was born in Sydney and uh, grew up in Canberra and did my undergraduate studies at the Australian National University in Canberra. And then I, after working for a little time at ANU, I moved to the Department for Education in Canberra and became interested in educational issues. And then the department was very nice and uh, funded me to do my master's in economics at the London School of Economics in the early 1990s. And I I sort of got the bug for doing research again. So I went back for a year and uh, started a PhD at UCL in 1992. So so that was my journey to, to the UK and UCL. So have you been at UCL since 1992? I did my PhD between 1992 and 1995. I had a scholarship from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So when I finished my PhD, I spent 10 years working at the IFS. And then I got appointed a professor of economics and social statistics at the Institute of Education in 2005. Ah, I joined in 2005. You and I have got long service medals, I think. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about your research on student finance. What drew you to that as a topic in the first place? Well, I actually worked in the Australian Department for Education and Training in the late 1980s when Australia first introduced tuition fees and alongside tuition fees introduced an income contingent loan called HECS. So I was sort of in the department when this policy change was happening. And then when I finished, I did my PhD using Australian and UK data. And I headed the education sector at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I had another Australian researcher who had just finished his master's at LSE. And he sort of said, we should do something on modelling student loans in the UK because it's not being done well. And that's where sort of my research started in around 2002 when we started trying to understand the implications of different higher education funding systems and loan systems 
in the UK context. That's a, a nice point to uh, ask you about some of the basics and the uh, the two broad approaches. So you mentioned one of them there, the income contingent loans, where repayments depend on the borrower's future income. And there's, a, there's another broad type of approach to student loans, isn't there? Time-based repayment loans, which work a bit like a mortgage. Could you perhaps walk us through that in a, in a bit more detail and also tell us which context we're likely to see each of these approaches in operation and their general pluses and minuses? Student loans have been around for almost 70 years. The first student loan was introduced in Colombia in the early 1950s and virtually all of these student loans were like typical loans that people would take for their cars or a mortgage. You you borrowed an amount of money and then you had a set time over to repay the loan. So, so if you borrowed £20,000 and had 10 years to, to pay the loan, you just pay the same amount every month till the loan was paid off. And this was virtually universal in the world. And then in the 1980s, when Australia decided to reintroduce fees for university, they came up with a new system of student loans. It was proposed by Professor Bruce Chapman at ANU. And the idea behind this was that if you're going to introduce fees, you didn't want students to have to pay for those fees up front. But a mortgage-style loan is not very equitable. For instance, if you finish your degree and then there's a bad labour market like there is now, how do you repay that loan if you're not earning any money? So he came up with this new system whereby you repaid the loan based on your current earnings, a certain percentage of your current earnings. The idea being that, you know, you would never face any constraints in repaying the loan. And that's where this idea was born. And as it happens, New Zealand decided this was a very good idea when it introduced fees and uh, it it introduced it in 1991. And then in the UK, um, when the Deering Review of Higher Education Funding was commissioned in 1997, Ron Deering said that the UK should introduce an income contingent loan. And the huge advantage of an income contingent loan is that it's administratively very simple. Students don't have to do anything. It is just taken if they're paid over a certain amount each month. It's just taken by their employer and paid to the government. If they lose their job, they don't have to do anything because they're not receiving any pay. So they pay nothing on their student loan. And so the UK introduced an income contingent loan in 1998. And gradually, more and more countries have recognised just how incredibly fair this is and administratively simple this is. And I think it is going to be a way forward for a number of countries, particularly given the current economic crisis. Are there any particular reasons why particular countries go for one type of this approach and not the other type? I think quite often the people who are making these policies don't understand the economics of student finance. So The first thing is that if, you know, you have to have government subsidise student loans. I mean, as an 18 year old, you can't turn up to a bank and say, you know, I need this money to live on or I need this money to pay fees. Give me a loan. And they'll say, you know, what collateral do you have? And most 18 year olds have no collateral. 
you know, they've got their brain, that's it. So, so most banks are not going to lend them money unless their parents act as guarantor or, you know, something like that. So there's a market failure, which means that governments have to be behind student loans. So this is what happens in most countries. But then they decide, okay, we're going to design a, a student loan. And typically what they say is that, you know, graduates on average earn a good salary. If we have a time-based repayment loan where, you know, it involves paying £50 a month for 10 years or whatever it is, that's not going to be very hard on the average graduate, so it should work fine. The problem is that there's no such thing as an average graduate. You know, people have bad luck. They become unemployed. They have a child. And once you've got no income, you know, £50 a month is unsustainable. So what we see in countries with these time-based repayment loans, that there are lots of defaults. So in the US, uh, you know, it's almost 30% of people who have taken out student loans are in default or have other excuses for not paying their loans. And this impacts on their credit reputation, their ability to get loans and causes lots of hardship. So whereas with income contingent loans, there's no fixed time which you have to repay your loan. If you do really well in the labour market, you'll pay your loan much quicker than you would with a typical mortgage style loan. Whereas if you don't do so well, or you have four years or five years off to work part-time, bring up a child, then you don't have any loan obligations in a low-earning state, and you just spend longer paying off your loan when you can afford to do it. What it means is there's no default, so the government doesn't lose the money, it gets it back eventually, but it ensures that a student who takes out one of these loans is never under financial stress. So there's a, I can see now the issue that there is with this time-based repayment loan approach. And I suppose as you've already indicated that, that the problems with it get thrown into quite sharp relief when you have something like a global health emergency come along and upend things quite abruptly. So I'm just sort of casting forward a little bit there. In the UK and elsewhere, we're going to be facing the prospect of tens of millions of new graduates searching for employment in the context of a global recession. So what's the impact of that likely to be on graduates? Because I can imagine, for instance, that's for some, that's going to be the, the issue of debt might be quite anxiety inducing. Well, well, is it? I mean, because effectively, the income contingent loan in the UK means that you pay 9% of every pound, you earn over £25,000 for up to 30 years. So, you know, my eldest son has just graduated this year. He has no job. He has a student loan. Should he be anxious about that? No, because he won't have to pay anything. There'll be no interest on his loan from now on. So, you know, his anxiety is over whether he's going to get a job and not the student loan because it only, you only have to pay it if you're earning over £25,000. So I think graduates graduating now in the UK have lots of anxiety over, you know, whether they get a job, what they do, but it won't be anxiety over their student loans. Whereas in the US at the moment, there is huge 
anxiety over student loan repayment. The government has had to introduce a a student loan repayment holiday, but it's a huge administrative task to get this into place. There's been huge problems with people being refused loans for other things because, you know, there hasn't been communication about why they're not paying their student loan. It is a huge problem. It's administratively burdensome. And it's, you know, it could result in students having their credit reputation ruined. So I think graduates and other students coming in at the moment in the UK have lots of anxiety because of COVID-19. But it is not going to be due to having to repay their student loan. So this situation, the COVID situation, could be a bit of a game changer, potentially. Is it, might it make it more or less likely that countries who use the time-bound model might future ditch it in favour of the income contingent approach? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm working with a number of countries at this moment because they are really, really worried about the implications of COVID on graduates and getting their money back from student loans. So I'm working with Colombia at the moment, who I said were the first country that introduced student loans. And in April and May, 40% of their loan holders have stopped paying. So, you know, they've got a huge crisis and they're really, really worried about it. So they are very keen to see if there's some way that they can introduce an income contingent loan to ensure that they get their money back eventually. And so I'm working with them using fabulous data to see if we can design a system where it's a win-win situation where the student loan company gets more money and the students aren't put under financial pressure. I mean, every single country is different and, you know, it won't work everywhere. But I've worked in enough countries, Malaysia, Colombia, Chile, US, and used really good data to suggest that it would be a much better solution and much more equitable and cost effective than their current loan system. So could you perhaps give us an example of, of work that you've done with a specific country to sort of shift the dial on changing loan systems? I was in Malaysia last year. I was invited over to Malaysia. So so the government, the student loan company in Malaysia has got very big default rates. And so they announced that they're going to introduce an income contingent loan to try and solve this problem. And they actually, the government proposed some quite sensible ideas about how they would implement this. And interestingly, in Malaysia, the very richest graduates started protesting because under the proposed income contingent loan, they would actually have to pay back their loan faster than they would under the mortgage style loan because they were very high earning. And they implemented a very effective campaign, which meant that the government said, okay, we'll introduce an income contingent loan, but you'll only have to pay, start paying back you know, above a pretty high income threshold. And so I went over there in March last year and looked at their data and I just sort of said, you know, what you're proposing, you know, will just lose you money hand over fist. You can't do that. What you were proposing before was very sensible. And so they abandoned uh, the, the sort of updated model and it's still going on. They're still negotiating about how they can reform their systems. So I stopped them doing something silly, I think, but it's still some way away from uh, introducing an income contingent loan. It sounds like it's a tricky balance to strike because somewhere you're going to upset some probably not insignificant group of people in terms of size and influence. Well, 
in lots of countries, there's vested interest, right? In the US, student loans are operated by private banks who, who, and the government guarantees these loans. So, so these these banks get quite lucrative returns on administering these student loans. So that you know they have a lot of interest in the current system staying. In somewhere like Malaysia, I think their student loan company employs about fifteen hundred people to administer its student loans, whereas. In Australia, for their income contingent loan system, admittedly a smaller country, I remember uh, being there and somebody from Brazil sort of said, you know, how many people administered your student loan system? And the Australian tax office said 18. And he said, 80? That's uh, that's uh, very, very small. And he said, no, 18, one eight. It is so efficient because employers already take tax. Therefore, just taking an extra cut from your pay to pay your student loan is administratively very, very efficient. And, you know, the government has a huge advantage. They know exactly what you're being paid every month, whereas private companies don't. And so so the collection mechanism for these other types of loans are very administratively burdensome. It has huge advantages having these loans because they're so administratively efficient. In a circumstance like COVID, they stop taking loans as soon as you lose your job. So they're very fair as well. Lorraine, I wanted to ask you about a topic that routinely comes up around student finance, and that's the idea of removing tuition fees altogether. And it's something that was in the Labour Party manifesto at the two most recent UK elections. Now, it's something that has intuitive appeal, but it's also quite a controversial idea. Could you run us through the upsides and the downsides of this idea? Sure. So, so, so you know, the Labour manifesto said having free higher education. Of course, you know, there's a famous saying, there's no such thing as a, a free lunch. I mean, what free higher education means is taxpayers paying for higher education. And that is highly regressive because less than 50% in the UK go to higher education. So it is being funded by the rest of taxpayers who don't go to higher education. Now, some people sort of say it's a progressive tax system and that's fine. But there's just simply, you know, we saw during the 1990s, not enough money from taxpayer collection to fund universities sufficiently to provide free higher education. So during the 1990s, funding per student at higher education plummeted. So you've got to work out a way, how are you going to keep the costs of higher education down? So so there's two ways, and the government implemented both of those, cut funding per head and capped places. So One of the trade-offs when they introduced fees was that universities benefited from that money directly. So so the funding per student went up. And as a quid pro quo, because the government now had to pay less, it expanded the number of places available for people that wanted to go to higher education. So that's one aspect. It's not free. However, what I would argue is what you need to ensure that those who are going to benefit most from higher education and university is that it's free at the point when you start university. And that means that you don't have to pay any fees up front 
And importantly, you get sufficient resources to be able to support yourself whilst at university. They're two really important things because individuals from poor socioeconomic backgrounds, even when there was no fees, had to find money um, to support themselves. You know, otherwise you you know you need textbooks, you need accommodation costs. So I think the important thing is that university is free at the point of delivery. And then how much you contribute to your university education depends on how well you do in the labour market. And that's what the income contingent loan system does. If you do brilliantly in the labour market, in the UK system, you will you know, fully pay back your loan. Whereas if you have bad luck or you, know, you get sick or something happens, then you still have a sizable government subsidy. And if you never work, you get a 100% subsidy. So I actually think the income contingent loan is so much more progressive than having free higher education because it still involves taxpayers contributing something. But it also means that the graduates who do best contribute something which frees up resources for the rest of the population that aren't benefiting from higher education. Lorraine, I'm just going to just keep with the sort of slightly political dimension of this, just for my my last question. And that is, if we were to put you in charge, we're going to make you prime minister for the day now. It's, it's a little known secret, this, but this podcast does have that power. But so if, if we were to do that, um, what one policy change regarding student finance would you make? And, and let's say as well that it's for keeps. You know, no one can undo this. So what would you do? What I th- would do is reform all of post-school higher education, not just university education. So I think there should be much more money put into vocational routes. And that includes providing students who go through vocational education with income contingent loans so that they have the money to properly engage with their vocational education. At the moment, people from poor socioeconomic backgrounds who are thinking, should I do a technical route or should I do a university, will tend to choose the university route because they can get much more money to study. And it's not neutral. I just think, you know, universities have benefited hugely. The funding per student has gone up massively as a result of introducing fees whereas the vocational sector has been neglected. And I think there has to be a much more equal treatment of both routes because I think they're equally valuable and it depends on the individual. The second thing I would do as part of that is to reintroduce grants. So for the poorest students, they should get upfront funding, which they never have to repay because under the current system, those from the poorest backgrounds can get bigger loans to support themselves, but have the biggest debts. And I don't think that's fair. I I think there should be a common loan for support. And then those from the poorest backgrounds should have a grant so so that there's no difference in loans because of where you come from. That's what I would do. Well, that's I think we might have to wield that power then. make it happen. Lorraine, it's been really interesting talking with you. Thanks for coming onto the podcast and sharing with us your research and your thoughts on student finance. Thank you.
You can follow Lorraine on Twitter at Lorraine Dearden and you can learn more, much more about her research via the links in the episode notes. There are four seasons worth of episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as other IOE podcasts, all available for you. Search IOE podcasts wherever you get your listening and enjoy some absorbing lectures, lively debates and fascinating series spanning the social sciences and education. There's our podcast playlist too, which features songs chosen by our guests and the IOE podcast team. It's the only place I have ever seen Beethoven sandwiched between Taylor Swift and Nina Simone. And I'm not joking. Check it out uh, and the podcast via our UCL webpage. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Rob Webster. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 